Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 331. Athelred, thoughts and prayers. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And this week on the members feed, we have a shop talk where we discuss the jokes that the scribes left in the Chronicle, we chase clues about what was going on behind the scenes at Mercia, and we finally explain what's been happening with the outro music lately. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the previous members episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Gregory, Dean, and Sophie for signing up already. King Athelred, for the first time in quite a long time, had a chance for a breather. And that's because King Swain Forkbeard, having been paid a king's ransom, had withdrawn his forces and made a promise to never return. Furthermore, the Wolf Dynasty, which had been a powerhouse in courtly politics ever since the 990s, was now all but wiped out. There were a few stragglers here and there, but that Mercian power block, which had wielded so much influence over the king for more than a decade, was now gone. And in their place was the king's new best friend, Edric Strayona. The man who had played a critical role in the removal of the wolf dynasty. And so, it was a new day for King Athelred. And it was a whole new world for Edric Strayona. Or... Rather, should I say, it was a whole new world for Elderman Edric Strayona of Mercia. He'd had a promotion. And so in many ways, things were back to normal. But even though Athelred and his court were back to business as usual, you know, stabbing rivals in the back, grabbing lands wherever possible and that sort of thing, well, they still couldn't ignore the last few decades of abject military failure because those decades had hit them right where it mattered most in their pocketbooks. Over the years, they'd been having to pay to keep the army in the field. They'd lost multiple harvests to the raiders. They'd lost God knows how much gold and silver from the looting. And don't even get me started on how expensive it was going to be to rebuild all the infrastructure that was lost from the burning and the pillaging. And then, to top it off, they had to pay a huge Danegeld to get them to leave. And that was just Forkbeard's last campaign. This has been happening again and again. But... Forkbeard's last campaign had been extremely expensive for the nobility of England. And to make matters worse, even though Swain had promised to never return, well, that was the second time he'd made that particular promise. And the last time he made it, it was less than a decade before he sailed back and started lighting up English towns like Christmas trees. And that's because Danegelds didn't buy lasting peace. They didn't buy friendship, and they certainly didn't buy prosperity. All they bought was time. And this was a fact that King Alfred knew all too well. And that's one of the main differences between him and Athelred. You see, Alfred knew how to use the time that he had bought. But Athelred, on the other hand, well, he used that time to create more political chaos and extract even further wealth for him and his chosen few. And in a short-term, venal, and personal way, that might have been a good use of his time. But as far as a national effort goes, that was catastrophic. But after the last Danegeld, something had changed. Because Athelred and his court appear to have realized that it was only a matter of time before Forkbeard, or someone like Forkbeard, would land on the English shores once again. 
and that would mean it would be incredibly expensive for them to get rid of them. So, for the first time in nearly 30 years, the English nobility put aside their petty internal squabbling, and they decided to make a serious effort at defending the kingdom through military force. A law code was issued, and this law code mandated the creation of a vast fleet, as well as a well-provisioned army. By law, each noble was required to provide a helmet and a corslet for every eight hides of land he governed over. And you'll remember that a height of land was the amount of land necessary to support a single family. So, assuming that the land was properly distributed, for each eight peasant families that Thane Athelbrad had serving him, he was ordered to produce a helmet and a corslet. And for every 310 hides of land, a warship must be constructed. Now, unless Thane Athelbrad was a major land magnate, it was unlikely that he'd be responsible for providing a warship. Instead, that task was more likely to be the responsibility of his elderman, Athelchris. Now, of course, while Athelbrad and Athelchris were responsible for tallying up their land holdings and then working out how many helmets, corslets, and ships they'd have to provide, the actual burden for providing the wealth and labor necessary to create the ships and armor came from those same peasants. Athelbrad and Athelchris weren't out there planing plants of wood for the keel nor were they digging into their personal treasuries to fund the creation of helmets and armor. No, those tasks went to poor Unferth, who, on top of being taxed heavily to pay for the lavish lifestyles of the Anglo-Saxon nobility and pay for the Danegelds, not to mention having just survived a massive famine and probably losing a great deal of weight and probably a few family members in the process, well now... He also had to provide the labor and money required to provide these new armaments and ships. Not that Unferth gets any credit for that, of course. Even modern historians, when discussing the creation of this fleet and this army, still manage to give all the credit to the nobility. The peasants, you know, the people who generated all that wealth, material, and labor to create the fleet, and the ones who made up most of the army, well, they mostly get ignored. But there's something else to know about this shift in the military posture of England. And that's the fact that it came from the top, and it was legally mandated. So rather than just having an entry in the Chronicles saying that the king built a ship, here we have Athelred's law codes that mandate their creation. And that's actually quite smart. Because with the honor culture pretty much long gone, the king could no longer put out a call and rely that the nobility would just show up and do their duty. So instead... Now, the provisioning of the army and the navy was a legal order. And if the nobility dropped their duty, then they would be in a world of hurt. I think the most interesting thing about the direction that Athelred was taking is that we're relatively certain that these law codes, the ones that mandate this army and this navy, weren't actually written by Athelred. Instead, historians are fairly certain that these codes were actually written by Archbishop Wolfstan. And not just because of Wolfstan's proximity to the crown, nor because he's known for being heavily involved in legislation throughout his lifetime, but also because these law codes read like one of his homilies. And that's fascinating in its own right, because we have Archbishop Wolfstan writing the laws of England, and we're not even entirely sure who Wolfstan's family was. I mean, he did rise in power at roughly the same time as the Wolf dynasty of Mercia did, and his name is a wolf name. 
so it's possible that the Archbishop was another member of that same Midland clan. But here's the thing. He was still alive, and he was still in power at a time when the vast majority of the Wolf dynasty had been deliberately wiped out. And actually, his power had increased. So maybe the name was just a coincidence. It's hard to know for certain. But whatever his family background was, Wolfstan was now shaping the legal history of England by releasing Law Codes 5 and 6 on Pentecost. And he did it to ensure that, quote, men of every order are each to submit willingly to that duty which befits them both in religious and in secular concerns, end quote. He was trying to reorient the perspective of the English and remind them that they had duties they had to attend to. And these codes weren't just focused on military matters. Wolfstan, through Athelred, was looking to fix many of the faults that ran through English society. Code 6, for example, deals with how markets, laws, and currency issues would be handled in London. In fact, it's so London-focused that it's known as the Institutes of London. But beyond just dealing with London, they're also dealing with, unsurprisingly, monetary issues. And in particular, they're taking aim at the increasingly rampant problem of counterfeit coins. Yeah, the currency was starting to get debased. Badly. And you might be wondering who was making these counterfeit coins. Well, there's a good chance that the counterfeiters were actually the very same people who were responsible for making the genuine coins. You see, minting at this time, even minting in large mint towns like London, was only a part-time gig. The coins would only be made at the time when they were issued. So for the rest of the time, minters would actually be going about doing their other job. And consequently, the minters weren't full-time professionals. Instead, they were likely wealthy people who did the kind of work that would give them the skill set needed to create coins. So goldsmiths, merchants, and the like. And these were people who had a lot of trust placed in them. And as such, they had a huge opportunity to literally make a massive amount of money if they wanted to. And sure enough, these new law codes reference people making false coins, and forging fake dyes, and even creating secret minting locations in the surrounding woods. And the people who had the skills necessary to do that were the minters themselves. And why wouldn't they start a side gig like this? Historically, the only thing stopping minters from minting fake coins was the rule of law. And the rule of law, as well as many of the corresponding norms, weren't being all that respected in England during the age of Athelred. The people at the highest levels were seeking profit wherever they could find it, and they were also heavily taxing the population to deal with the fact that they'd failed to do the one thing they were responsible for, defending the kingdom. The truth is that England under Athelred was a lot like the old kingdom of Northumbria, only bigger and even more ruthless. And as you might remember, debased money was a huge problem in Northumbria. So, do you think the moneyers under Athelred were going to be sitting on their hands and ignoring the chance to make some money? Especially considering the numerous Danegels that they were forced to subsidize, not to mention the great famine that was raging. Norms aren't going to feed your family, and besides, everyone else was cashing in. Why should they be the ones to remain honorable when everybody else was breaking the rules? And so, of course, we have a problem with debased coins and with counterfeit currency. England was teetering on the edge of being a failed state, so honestly it would have been strange if there wasn't a problem with counterfeit coins. And so to deal with this problem, 
The laws issued at Pentecost in 1008 included strict instructions on how to create coins. And this legal reform was so successful that you can actually see it in the archaeological record. Coins surviving from this era, from all across England, were suddenly remarkably uniform in appearance, weight, and purity. And that suggests that there wasn't just an issuing of laws regarding currency, there was also a corresponding crackdown on the counterfeiters. But as England was reforming how its markets, its currency, and its military were operating, in Athelred's court, tragedy had struck. Edgar, the son of Athelred and Elfgifu, had died. And that was terrible news for Athelred. But at the same time, it was kind of okay news for new Queen Emma, not to mention their new son, Edward, who was now probably about two or three at this point. Suddenly, there was one less obstacle on his path to the throne. But even so, the chances of Edward sitting on the throne were still vanishingly small. After all, even with the loss of Edgar, Athelred still had four living sons from his marriage to Elfgifu. But as the royal court mourned, the English people were hard at work constructing ships, creating armor, and forging weapons. And then there was a chance for levity. The court of Athelred began to make wedding plans. You see, Elderman Edric Striona of Mercia was unmarried, and that simply wouldn't do for a man of his stature. He needed a bride, and King Athelred had someone in mind. His own daughter, Edgith. And so, according to John of Worcester, by 1009, Edric married Athelred's daughter, making him not just an elderman, but the son-in-law to the king. Not bad for the son of a minor Midlands thane, right? But for as fun as weddings are, the fact was that work still needed to be done. And in early 1009, less than a year after the order was given for the creation of this military force, it was ready. The fleet was stationed off the coast of Sandwich, which indicates that Athelred and his court were anticipating the return of the Danes, and they intended to intercept their ships before they ever got the chance to land on the English coastline. So finally, we have the court of Athelred showing some ability of foresight and planning. And at the muster, over a hundred ships arrived. And they were drawn from all over the kingdom, often led by the nobles who were tasked with their creation, and of course being crewed by peasants and sailors from throughout the kingdom. What was gathering here was the largest naval force ever produced by England to date. It was gargantuan. And at that muster, the nobles gathered together. And among them was a South Saxon named Wolfnoth Child. And we're not entirely sure what his background was. But it's thought that, even though he was just a thane, he was a significant lord from a powerful dynasty. Because historians theorize that this Wolfnoth was the same one who was the father of Godwin, who in turn was the father of Harold Godwinson, the future king of England. But Harold Godwinson's grandfather wasn't the only noble with a heavyweight background attending this muster. Britrick was also there. And actually, Britrick wouldn't even deserve a mention if it wasn't for the fact that he was the brother of, you guessed it, Edric Strayona. So yeah, here we have Edric getting jobs for his family members, because of course he was. This was the age of Athelred. And it seems that Britric was in the same line of business as Edric, namely tearing down rival dynasties. Because at this muster, 
he accused Wolfnoth of some offense, the specifics of which have been lost to history. But the accusation must have been pretty bad, because it looks like Wolfnoth's lands might have been seized in the process. Because in response to this accusation, Wolfnoth boarded his ship, left the fleet, and he was joined by 20 other warships. And they went straight to Sussex, Wolfnoth's own territory. And there, they ravaged the coastline. Which is part of why I think Britric, probably through Edric and Athelred, had seized Wolfnoth's lands in Sussex. Because why else would Wolfnoth ravage his own lands? But regardless, Wolfnoth and the 20 ships were now pirates. And even if his behavior was justified, and to be clear, we have no idea what the alleged offense was, and it could have even been that he was a pirate. But even if it was an unjust accusation, and even if the ravaging was just an attempt to get some strike back at having his land stolen from him, well, even in that circumstance, it wasn't like the king and the fleet could ignore the threat. I mean, come on. It was bad enough that England had to deal with Vikings, but now they had a fleet of English pirates who was led by a scion of a likely powerful English dynasty who was burning and pillaging the English coastline as well. I mean, that wouldn't do. There had to be a response. So Britrick took the fleet and pursued them, which again tells you of how much power this brother of Edric Strayona had acquired. But here's the thing. While Edric and his family were apparently quite good at climbing the social ladder, that skill set didn't translate to sailing. And so the entire fleet of at least 80 ships ran aground during a storm. And then Wolfnoth, upon seeing this, set them alight and burned them down. What few ships remained shambled back to London. And with that, the great fleet the biggest naval force England had ever produced was reduced to a pile of soggy ashes. And of the ships that remained, almost all of them were now out there pirating the English coastline. Great job, guys. Just top-notch work. And I like to think of Unferth sitting by the coast of Sandwich grousing with Hilda about how this is the dumbest timeline. And then looking over the horizon and seeing a huge fleet of Drakars and saying, yep, the dumbest f***ing timeline. Because sure enough, it was on August 1st of 1009 that the Danes came back. And since the English fleet that was mustered at Sandwich was gone, destroyed in one of the greatest self-owns in history, well, these Danes decided they were going to disembark at Sandwich. And as for how many Danes there were, well... You know how England had the largest fleet launched to date? Well, guess what the Danes did? Yeah, they had the largest fleet ever landed during the Age of Athelred. And it wasn't just some Danish raiders this time. This wasn't just a collection of pirates drawn from Scandinavia who were going a Viking for a bit just in order to save up and get that farm they had their eye on. No, what landed at Sandwich were the Yams Vikings. And the Yams Vikings weren't farmers moonlighting as raiders. The Yams Vikings were professional full-time raiders. When you think of Vikings, at least when you thought of them before you learned more than you ever wanted to know about them, well, what you were probably thinking of were the Yams Vikings. And there were fully two companies of these guys landing at Sandwich. One company was led by a man named Hemming, and the other was led by his brother, Thorkill the Tall. 
the same Thorkel the Tall who served King Swain Forkbeard. Because it turns out that Athelred should have been more careful with the wording of that Danegeld. You see, Swain had promised that he wouldn't return to England, but he hadn't promised shit when it came to people working for him, which is why you always want to hire a lawyer for these things. And once the Yom's Vikings were fully disembarked, they set about ravaging the English countryside. The region around Canterbury was raided significantly until the city had to buy off the raiders with a Danegeld of 3,000 pounds. Next, London was besieged, but their walls held strong. Oxford, on the other hand, was burned. This army ravaged far and wide, and the scribe who wrote about this event in the Chronicle points to this army as the thing that broke the English, and what paved the way for future conquests. The treachery and factionalism that plagued the English nobility during the Age of Athelred was hitting a fever pitch, and for the scribe, it was all the fault of this army. But, as we know, the English nobles had been infighting long before this army had arrived, and it had only recently destroyed its own fleet before the Yams Vikings had even been sighted. Similarly, this same scribe blamed Edric for much of the infighting. And don't get me wrong, Edric was the worst. But the fact is that Edric, like the Yams Vikings, was a symptom, not the cause. What was ripping apart the fabric of English society wasn't a single army or a single shady character. It was a cultural dumpster fire, which, admittedly, would be hard to see if you're just some poor medieval monk trying to make sense of it all. But when you take the long view, you can see what's happening. However, speaking of trying to make sense of it all, the court of Athelred was trying to work out why everything was going wrong. Again. I mean, nothing was working. They tried bribery. They tried nepotism. They tried genocide. They tried everything. They even tried once to build a fleet. Nothing was making him happy. And by him, they weren't talking about Swain Forkbeard, nor Thorkel the Tall. No, the him that they were trying to make happy in this scenario was God. God was mad. And what was he mad about? Was it the grift? The corruption? The inequality, the rank mismanagement and dereliction of their duties. I mean, Jesus did say that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And he literally whipped people who were trying to make a profit. And let's face it, Athelred and his court were rich, and they were pretty obsessed with getting richer. So is that what was bothering Jesus? No. No, in the halls of the rich and powerful, they had a different Jesus. And what he was mad about was that King Edward, Athelred's older brother, had been murdered. And he was so mad about it that he was sending fleets of pagan raiders to kill the peasants. You know, those poor people who weren't involved in Edward's murder. Those were the ones who had to suffer. Classic rich Jesus. And upon looking at all the signs, the path for Athelred and his court were clear. They needed to make friends with rich Jesus. So another law code was issued. This one was known as Seven Athelred. And once again, this code has Archbishop Wolfstan written all over it. It decreed three days of national fasting, general penance, and it mandated that alms be given out. Even slaves had to be freed from work so they could attend mass. The entire kingdom was going to do penance for the murder of Edward. 
And this was such a high priority that they even produced new coins, where Athelred was no longer even appearing on them. Instead, the Lamb of God appears on one side, and a dove, or maybe the Holy Spirit, appears on the other side. Athelred and his court were going on a thoughts and prayers offensive, with a side of in God we trust currency. Surely that would bring God back to the side of the English, right? If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, all over the place. And you can find links to all those communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.